0: Thursday, February 23rd, 2012. Oh, man. You know, I'm thinking tinfoil pyramid hats today, you know? I'm Again, I'm just thinking that, because the, some of the things I want to talk about are, well... Strange. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Well, sadly, there is no shortage of strange, crazy, bizarre things being said out there about god and you know here's the deal i mean who are you gonna trust are you going to trust well philosophy are you going to trust your opinions are you going to trust your experiences to give you accurate information about god or are you going to trust his word i mean this is what it boils down to i mean it. Here's the deal. I've said this before, but it's been a while since I've made this point. Everybody is a theologian. Everybody is a theologian, and just you know, and what I mean by that is is that you know everybody's got opinions. They, they everybody holds to a theology, but not all theologies are true. Not all theologies well are worth your time and effort. Now. A lot of folks. I don't know if it's just laziness. I don't know if it's just a, a result of their sinful natures, but they're really they don't really spend all that much time thinking about the big questions. Okay, or they they are the deluded idea. Well, you know, I'm a good person, and you know, I mean, compared to you know, you know Charles Manson, pff, I'm I'm Mother Teresa. You know, and so I'm a good person. I I pay my taxes. I, you know, I my kids are in the honor roll and I make sure to volunteer at extracurricular events and and when the sign up sheet comes around saying that it's my turn to provide brownies and cookies, I sign off on that and I bring them and and so I mean I'm a good person. And I'm sure that, you know, that there's a God. I don't know much about him, but I'm sure he's out there somewhere. And that when he looks down on me, he goes, yeah, look at what a great person so-and-so is. Yeah, I mean, they're just fantastic. Oh, and they took a mission trips to Kenya to, to dig freshwater wells. Wow, yeah. I mean, that person's in like Flynn. They're going to go to heaven for sure. I mean, they're an upstanding model citizen. And he's like... Yeah, okay, here's the deal. That entire litany, which, by the way, um, if you've had any conversations with your pagan friends next door, uh, that's generally how they they think and feel. They might say things like, you know, listen, I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. I'm just not religious. You know, I don't want to go to... You know, a place where there's organized religion. No, 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 no. My my religion, you know, is disorganized. And you know, I I believe in the great spirit in the sky, and um, you know, and and make sure to you know salute him, it, her, whatever it is, on a regular basis. And you know, but I mean, you talk to your pagan friends. This is generally how they talk. It's this you know weird stuff. But what's really frightening about all of that is is that none of it none of it is based upon what God has revealed about himself. Plain and simple. That's just some kind of naturalistic pagan idea or concept, which in some, to some degree is based upon the simple fact that while God has revealed in his word in Romans chapter one, that the law of God is written on the heart of all of mankind. So, Yes, we were created in God's image. We have the law written on our hearts. But don't forget this little factoid. None of us is good. None of us is righteous. None of us seeks God. Each and every one of us was born dead in trespasses and sins, with Adam's sin imputed to us. Our default setting is not somebody who loves God, who loves neighbor, who obeys God and cares for neighbor? No, the natural setting that we all come, come, you know, and arrive at, you know, on the planet is dead sinner, rebel, um, with with bizarre, weird, idolatrous ideas and stuff like that. And so the idea here is is that you know you've got all these free floating ideas about God. Out there, and uh, you know listen with seven billion people on the planet, you can pretty much um, assume that there's seven billion different individual unique ideas about God floating around out there um and, and then you know and, and but see the thing is is that God has revealed information, and it's not just any old information, okay you, you got to understand you know uh, God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword that what we have in the Scriptures is a perfect, inerrant, accurate, and true revelation of who God is, what our problem is, and what God has done to solve the problem. And when your ideas contradict Scripture, um, well, uh, you are sinning. Yeah, I mean, the, literally, you're sinning. Where it says in Scripture, you will have no other gods before me, Part of that idea is, is that, listen, idolatry is when you fashion a god after your own image, after your own ideas, after your own concepts. Um, it, in other words, uh, when you say, the, listen, the god I believe in would never do X, Y, or Z, or the god I believe in, you know, he doesn't care about this or that or the other thing. Uh, well that god that you believe in is the god of your own making and that's called idolatry and that's a problem now it doubly becomes a problem when idolatry becomes the well one of the predominant um, problems uh that is existing in the visible church okay this doesn't make any sense because here's the deal i you you, you can't call yourself a christian and mean by that that you, that you are in accord with a brother and in fellowship with the Christians, like in the first century. We'll, we'll even say the Christians in the book of Acts. If the God you believe in, the Jesus you believe in, isn't the one that they were believing in and teaching and about and confessing. The, the idea is this, is that remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus says to the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? Now, here's the deal go and make disciples of all nations? Um, hmm. There's a little bit of a problem here. Okay. And in, in, in work with me for a second. Okay. A little bit of a problem. How are the 12 disciples at that point, 11, how are they supposed to fulfill that? commission to make disciples of all nations i mean the time in which the day in which that was given there was no steamboats there was no internet there was no airplanes um the only way to get around was on a beast of burden or walking make disciples of all nations how were they supposed to get to papua new guinea how were they supposed to get to australia you know all nations right well, here's the deal, okay, is that when somebody is commissioned to deliver a message, commissioned to do a particular thing, okay, if that person, especially if the commission comes from a you know a king, you know, and think ancient world here, uh, when the disciples received a commission from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to make disciples of all nations. But they've got they've got a, a geographical problem, a travel problem, and then they got a chronology problem, and that is is that none of them are alive today. So how 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 are they supposed to fulfill this commission, right? Answer: When you know, in a situation like that, you can ordain. Notice the uh, pastoral term there. You can ordain and pass on that authority, that that commission, and commission somebody else to fulfill the mission in your stead. Okay, if you're dying. Right. So I'm traveling out. You know, the king has sent me to do this, but it looks like I'm going to die so I can grab some Joe. Listen, I'm about to die. I'm going to commission you. You are now given this task. Right. And when you read the reformers, when you read the church fathers, one of the things they talk about The fact is that the apostles today are still preaching. The apostles today are still teaching. The apostles today are still fulfilling their commission of making disciples of all nations. Nations, because there are people who have been installed into the office of apostolic teaching. They're not apostles, they are pastors and teachers who have been ordained, installed, commissioned to teach the apostolic message. Okay, now that being the case, we don't have, I, I, as a teacher in the church, um, as you know, pastors in the ministry, I don't have, you don't have, nobody's got the ability. To change the commission, okay? You either pick it up and you work to help fulfill it, okay? And I'm I'm not talking like you know the apostolic thing that the Catholics are talking about. You, You know, anybody who is commissioned to teach the apostolic message is participating in this in this commission, so to speak. They're deputies commissioned to you know under the teaching and uh, foundation of the apostles. This is what's been set up. This is what we're to deliver. This is what we're to teach. This is what we're to preach. This is what we're to confess. This is what we are to reject, by the way. When you confirm, when you affirm something, I believe this or I believe that, you are cutting yourself off from other teachings that are contrary to it and therefore you must oppose those contrary concepts this is all part you know basic ideas one-on-one but uh christianity one-on-one so when we say that we believe in the one true god who exists as father son and holy spirit okay he's revealed himself in scripture which by the way sub sub topic here real quick here um for free i you know i'm not charging for this little bunny trail but real quick um, there's a popular argument out there and the popular argument against the Trinity goes something like this. Listen, the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't taught, well, really wasn't taught until the third century. Do we really expect Christians to have to believe the doctrine of the Trinity? By the way, that is a false statement. Mm-hmm. Here's the reason why. The doctrine of the Trinity does not have its origins in the third century. Nope. The doctrine of the Trinity, by the way, is an ancient, ancient, ancient teaching that begins not in the third century, not with the apostles. It begins at Genesis chapter one, verse one, which says in the beginning, Elohim, Barah, created the heavens and the earth, and if you know Hebrew, then you know that there's a grammatical issue here, and the grammatical issue is this, is that, you know, our translation says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew, it says, in the beginning, God's, he created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, there's the the noun and the verb don't agree at all. And so over and again, you see similar things happening like that throughout the Hebrew text. The, the, the doctrine of the Trinity has its origins in the Word of God going back to the very, very, very first sentence ever penned in God's Word. Absolutely true. Anyway, so, so here's the deal. Okay, we don't have the ability to change what, uh, what the message is. We are to take it up. And can, and to work and co-labor with the apostles, if you would, to put forward the apostolic teaching. And by doing that, the apostles still to this day preach, the apostles still to this day teach, the apostles still to this day are fulfilling the Great Commission. And you can say they're doing it through us, through the agency of called and ordained teachers and pastors and, and preachers in the Christian church. So if you're a Christian... You don't get to call, you don't get to deviate from the message, and when you deviate from the message and instead insert your own ideas, your own philosophies, your own speculations, your own whatevers uh, that are not in accord with what God has revealed in his word, to the degree that you do that, you lose, you forfeit the right to be called a Christian. If Christian is, you know, here's the deal. We have all these modifiers that we have out there right now. You know, you know, I'm a Christ-centered Christian. I'm a gospel-centered Christian. I'm a, you know, I'm a this and I'm a that. Now understand, you know, when people ask me, Chris, how do you describe yourself? I say I'm a first century Catholic. OK, a small C, not Roman Catholic. Uh, that's the way I like to do that. Only because, by the way, when I do that, it's because I'm trying to keep conversation going. I'm, I, I'm trying to come up with a category that somebody hasn't exactly heard before so that they can go, what's that? I'm glad you asked. OK, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you are either a Christian or you are not. Lose all the modifiers. OK, you are either a Christian or you are not. And no Christian has the right to his own private interpretations or his own private theology and his own private doctrines and his own private whatevers, okay? If you are truly a Christian, you are called to believe what God has revealed about himself in Scripture and to take up the apostolic message and commission and don't deviate from it. Okay, I mean, I mean, listen, when somebody claims to be a Christian, but they don't believe what God has revealed about himself, this would be the equivalent of saying, hey, listen, you know, uh, I I want to open up a McDonald's franchise. Now, I don't know if McDonald's still franchises and I don't even think they need to, but just work with the metaphor for a second like this. okay? And so, okay, they, so I I I show up at McDonald's headquarters, you know, because I want to be a fast food, you know, you know, kingpin and giant. I, I want to be a, a, a McDonald's franchise holder, owner, operator, kind of thing. So I go to McDonald's headquarters and I fill out all the paperwork to start a franchise, and they say, "Oh, we are so excited, Chris, that uh, you want to open up a McDonald's franchise in your neck of the woods. We were looking forward to putting a Mac, uh, you know, yet, yet another McDonald's, you know, you know, just miles away from where our current McDonald's is. But we feel that the population is exploding there. No problemo. Yeah, we are very excited. So I go through all the process. I, I let's say I, they award me the franchise." We build the building. We've you know got the property. We build the building and all this kind of stuff, and then it comes time to train people and to begin to buy the food for the menu, and so they say, "Okay, Chris. Well, here's the deal. I mean, here's the McDonald's franchise. We make French fries this way, and here's the menu that of things that we offer. You know, like uh, the uh, egg McMuffin." The Big Mac. Uh, I I haven't been to McDonald's in a lot. Chicken McNuggets. You know things like that. Okay. And I say, you know, I, I I understand that this is a McDonald's franchise. I get that. I get that. But you know, I'm I, I'm just not a big fan of you know McNuggets and 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 French fries and and hamburgers. And so I, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and um, we're going to make pizza. And uh, and on top of it, I'm thinking bratwurst and and uh, also you know for all the bloggers that we want to have sitting here with our free Wi-Fi, we're gonna be offering Cheetos. Uh, in fact, we want to keep the menu simple, so we're just gonna we're gonna put those things on the menu, and that's what we're gonna serve here at this McDonald's. <laughs> I guarantee you, the McDonald's executives would look at me and go, "What?" You you can't be a McDonald's franchise if you're not selling McDonald's french fries, Big Macs, Big uh, McNuggets, McFlurries and and all that kind of stuff. You're not a McDonald's if you're not selling the things on the menu. Well, you know, listen, stop trying to foist your modernist ideas about you know uh about food and menu selections. I I don't care if there's a big golden arches outside. That does not matter. Okay. I am not going to be limited and put in a box and told what I'm going to sell in my McDonald's franchise. I mean, if I want my McDonald's to sell pizza and to do whatever, you know, that's my decision. And how dare you try to imprison me and put me in a box with your modernist exclusive and limiting. You're trying to stifle my creativity here. I was going to put happy faces on all of the pizzas too, because that was a vision that came to me in the middle of the night. You, you, you understand. I would lose my McDonald's franchise franchise on the spot if I started talking like that right R- right why because headquarters reserves the right to disenfranchise a franchise if the franchise doesn't f- obey the franchise rules right? Why is it that McDonald's would p- yank the franchise of uh of a rogue operator um quicker than the church would yank somebody out of the pulpit. For teaching rank heresy and not teaching what the apostles taught, not teaching what's in accord with sound doctrine, but it, 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 they not only endure it, you know, you know, but they celebrate it and promote it. And they, you know, you understand what I'm saying? Anyway, kind of a long monologue, but uh, you get what I'm saying. So because I'm trying to make a point, but you'll, you'll see what I'm saying uh, as the program unfolds. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith really quick. We'll we'll talk about what we're going to do here. Um, like I said earlier, tinfoil pyramid hats are probably going to be um, uh, important. We're going to do a quick Ed Young update. Uh, there's a recap video that uh, Ed Young just posted uh, at the C3 2012 website. You find it at c3conference.com, and that was recently concluded. I mean, featuring some of. Some word faith heretics, but uh, they're at, uh, at Fellowship Church. But what we're going to do is we're going to play uh, the recap video and just make a couple of points. Now, obviously, all of the quotes that we're going to hear are out of context, but some of them stand alone enough to be able to comment on. We'll take a look at that. Um, I've got a, a video f- uh, of a conversation between Doug Paget and a, a guy by the name of Tim Condor of Emmaus Way, which is a emergent cohort in Durham uh uh is it north uh, north carolina it's in durham i'll I'll get the state here uh, when we get closer to the sermon review but uh we're going to listen to a little bit of this conversation we'll do a little bit of an emergent update and then uh working along the emergent theme i've got two blog posts by postmodern emergent types uh, one of their favorite things to do is engage in philosophical postmodern deconstruction and so the question that both of these blog posts um, are trying to answer is the question is did jesus have to die to save us from sin that's the question and of course what will be very interesting is to look at how they answer the question will they go to the biblical texts will or will they engage in philosophy and speculation um is this what uh, a christian franchise is supposed to be teaching or is this something completely different and, uh, and uh, so that will really round out the first hour. And then in hour number two, we're going to do something we've never done here before. And, and you're thinking, is that even possible, Chris? I mean, you've been doing this program for almost four years. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, granted, you keep saying that things are getting worse, and then when they get worse, we all have our jaws on the floor going, it couldn't get worse than that, but it usually does. Well, here's the deal in our sermon review time uh here at fighting for the faith i don't think to the best of my memory i have yet to actually play a sermon time if you can even call it that at an emergent cohort um at an emergent f- faith community um uh and uh, and so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be listening to uh um what would be the teaching sermony type thing at Emmaus Way in Durham, and um, the uh, the text for this particular teaching time at this faith community emergent cohort, which is supposedly something that has something to do with Christianity, the text is taken from the um, children's book, The Three Little Wolves and the Big Bad Pig. Yeah, um, I don't think you're going to need your Bible for the sermon review today. and But tin foil pyramid hats yeah um you know things to protect you might be an important thing because i i don't know how you're going to react to what it is you're going to hear and as a result of it, I do think I need to quickly play our short version of our warning for the, pro- for, for the program. It will be appropriate today.
1: Warning. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith, cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinew nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended.
2: My bag's are packed ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up to say goodbye. But the dawn is breaking, it's early morn. The taxi's waiting This is our on. Ed Young
0: update music.
2: Already I'm so lonesome I could die. So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you never let me go. Cause I believe in all the jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back.
0: I grab a big lighter and, you know, hold it up.
2: Oh, babe, I hate to go.
0: You know, I think they have an app for that on my iPhone. Hang on. Oh, yeah, it's the Zippo app. So
2: many times I let you down. So many times I played around. I tell you now, they don't mean a thing. Yeah, this is in
0: honor of Ed Young's Private Jet.
2: Every place I go, I'll think of you. Every song I sing, I'll sing for you. When I come back, I'll bring your wedding ring. So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you wait for me.
0: Don't know when I'll be back again. Yeah, the fishing is great in Miami, and I might be gone a long time. Yeah, all right, all right. Enough of that. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, that's our (laughs) Ed Young update. Music. So Ed Young uh, recently, recently uh, f- finished hosting the uh, C3 conference there, uh, which is one of the creative things that he does at fellowship you know, because Ed Young, well, he's a pastor to pastors and he needs to teach everybody how to be innovative, just like, he- wait, sorry, innovative, just like the way he is, because, you know, God's doing a new thing, and you got to get in the groove of the new thing that God's doing. So uh, here's uh, Ed, the, the recap video, which features a whole bunch of the folks that were doing the teaching there at um, the C3 conference. I, you know, I'm bummed I missed some of this, but the reality is, is I purposely ignored it. The reason being, I was still kind of burnt out from the whole Code Orange Revival Heresy Olympics. So I mean, the last thing I wanted was like Heresy Olympics Part Two. But uh, here's the recap video, and I'll kind of walk you through it. But uh, here we go.
3: I've never had so much knowledge pushed into my brain in such a short amount of time.
4: Why did we start C3? I'll tell you why. To give people
0: handles. To talk about life in the raw and the real. That's right. And that was the night he actually... uh, Revealed to everybody he was wearing Spanx. So, because he was trying to, you know, get rid of the handles that he had while giving other people handles, which is important. But keep in mind, you you know, in Ed Young's own words, you know, wearing Spanx does give you gas. So, when we honor the Lord God Almighty with now, that's Dr. Ed Young, that's Ed Young's father. With confession,
4: however we express it, that's our heritage. Proclaim worship. Creativity happens out of the context of order.
0: You know, now, this is Ed Young. You don't create your way into order. You got order. Then you have creativity. We are yet for one reason. Now, that's uh, At Boshoff. Um He's from South Africa. And that is to expand God's kingdom. Nothing else. Not just to have church gatherings and church meetings.
4: We have a credible faith.
0: Now, this is Lee Strobel. Uh, we author and apologist.
4: Have a faith that has good answers to the toughest questions of life, but we are fellow members in God's household.
0: Now that's Kevin Gerald. Uh, so once again, uh, Ed Young uh, wasn't able to secure Joel Osteen for the for the event. So he had to go with the, you know, the cheap Rolex knockoff of uh, Joe Losing that would be Kevin Gerald
4: we belong to God we are
0: somebody yeah we are somebody defending your fear and start defending your faith that's Buddy Crameen's
4: we can go into the promised land.
0: That's Steve Kelly of Wave Church, uh, Word Faith heretic.
4: We can defeat the Giants. We can be all that God's called us to be.
0: We can defeat the Giants. We can go into the promised land. Notice, notice the allegorizing and the narcissistic eisegesis. If young people just take a break before making big... Now, that's Marion Jones. Big rush... Ra- that's a, a Olympic athlete.
5: Ash decisions in their life. Things can be a lot different.
0: If
2: you are religious,
0: you this is Steve Muncy.
2: won't reach anybody
0: but religious people. That's, That's right. If you're religious, you won't reach anybody but religious people. Yeah, Um. weird. The Apostle Paul was really religious, like, you know, ridiculously religious. It's so religious that he, like, wrote a large portion of the New Testament. Weird. And he reached a whole bunch of, um you know, pagans with the gospel, a bunch of Gentiles. Weird, you know, this Steve muncie um, that's some hair that he's got going on there too. Got to tell you, you know, if you haven't seen hair <laughs> Steve muncie he looks like he has been influenced by, you know, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and um, you know the folks over there at TBN, which by the way, he's a regular at TBN.
2: He is brilliant
0: only here and now and the presence of god is- this is leo bigger uh, he's from zurich switzerland
2: right now jesus didn't die for correct doctrine jesus died for people
0: yeah that's terry christ of city of grace in scottsdale arizona gotta play that one again i mean, I get through all of these here hang on a second here just backing up the video just a sm- smidge because i want you to hear this particular slogan because you may have heard this one before And we're going to take a shot at it. Hang on.
2: No, Jesus didn't die for correct doctrine. Jesus died for people.
0: Yeah, Terry Christ. Uh, Jesus didn't die for correct doctrine. Yeah, he didn't die for Cheetos either, Um, and he didn't die for beanbags. Nope, Jesus didn't die for that. What a funny statement. Jesus didn't die for correct doctrine. He died for people. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the statement, Jesus died for people, isn't that a doctrinal statement? Hmm? Weird, huh? Why is it that Terry Christ is taking a shot at sound doctrine? By the way, the Bible teaches... Things regarding sound doctrine, and it's weird because the Bible itself doesn't uh pit sound doctrine against Jesus' crucifixion and what he did on the cross isn't that weird uh, I mean I mean for instance okay Titus chapter one titus chapter one okay says, uh, I'll start at verse 9. If you want to go back and do just a little bit of context, okay? Titus chapter 1, I'll start, start at verse 9, talking about a, an, an overseer or an elder. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Weird, the Apostle Paul didn't say, listen, Jesus didn't die for sound doctrine. He died for people, so stop harping on the sound doctrine thing. No, the Apostle Paul tells Titus that a, a, a pastor must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And, and then in Titus chapter 2, he, he reiterates the point. He says to uh, Pastor Titus, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, plain and simple. And uh, this is kind of interesting, too. Um, uh, First Timothy, the Apostle Paul again Uh, says this, understanding this, that the law is uh, not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and for the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane and those who strike their fathers and mothers and for murderers and the sexually immoral men and those who practice homosexuality and enslavers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, you know, it's just weird to me that, you know, Ed Young's C3 conference would feature Terry Christ making a statement, well, like this.
4: ...die for correct doctrine. Jesus
2: died for people. We're looking...
0: Yeah, Jesus didn't die for correct doctrine. He died for... People. I mean, this is just an absurd statement. Anyway, so I'm not going to be able to get through the whole thing. If you want to see, you know, the uh, the recap video, you can find it at c3conference.com. But uh, you know, the uh, the lineup well included some pretty dubious word faith folks, and uh, and well, just some of the highlight statements that they chose to play on the recap video were well um, bizarre to say the least. Okay, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. At my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. (laughs)
2: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church.
0: You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio.
2: You've tuned in just in time to catch today's emergence ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics.
0: Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quandos Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off.
2: McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and...
0: Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Padgett in left field.
2: But wait, Uru's Weber is
0: charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a baddie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court.
2: It looks like Jones and Paget are double-teeing Bowles Webber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough.
0: McLaren is there to make the safety, but Paget grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pommel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing. Unfortunately,
2: the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points.
0: Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait! Jones is trying to steal third base! Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means
2: it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin.
0: Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. We're back. Uh, Warning, if somebody isn't, well, teaching you what the scripture teaches, but saying that it has something to do with God and Christianity, um, they're, they're not telling you anything about God and Christianity. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons. Click on one of them. The uh, donate button is all about making a one-time contribution. The uh, join our crew is about signing up to automatically contribute $6.95. It's not a lot of money, but trust me when I tell you, the more people that sign up for that, it makes it so that our our giving is predictable month to month so that we can better budget uh, our expenses. So if you're not a member of our crew, please consider joining our crew. And there's perks when we have uh, featured bonus things available, like uh, next month we're going to be offering uh, the e-book of uh, uh, The Origin of Paul's Religion by uh, J. Gresham Mason as a bonus for everybody who is a member of our crew during the month of March. So, you know, there's, there's perks. They, they come up from time to time as we're able to get them available. But uh, So so click on the Join Our Crew button. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you uh, for your support because we cannot do what we do without without it. All right, moving along. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern philharmonic orchestra. Set free from the limiting modernist definitions of notes, they play as they are inspired by the spirit. It brings tears to my eyes. a joyful noise. Oh, what rapturous joy. Uh, uh, yeah, One of my favorite... <laughs> Pieces of intro music that we uh, that we offer here at Fighting for the Faith. That's all leading into a conversation that took place online between Doug Paget and a gentleman by the name of Tim Conder. Uh, Doug Paget is uh, in Joe Paw Productions. That would be uh, Tony Jones and Doug Paget together. They equal Joe pa. Uh, In May, they're going to be holding a Church Planters Conference. And just let me ask you this question right up front: Would you want to attend a church? that was planted by somebody who, was, who learned how to do church planting from these two. Here, listen in.
6: Sure. Hey, this is Doug Padgett, and I'm with Tim Condor. And as you know, we are asking the presenters from the Church Planters Academy that will be taking place in Minneapolis May 3rd through the 5th of 2012 to share with us how their churches got started. And uh, Tim has a church in Durham, North Carolina. Do I have that right? Exactly. Durham, not in Raleigh. Uh, he has classed it up and is over in Durham. Uh, North Carolina the church is called uh, the Emmaus Way. And, uh, Tim, how did you all get started with the Emmaus Way?
4: Like it's not often people refer to Durham as classed it up. But, yeah, uh, I know. Hey,
6: <laughs> I'm aware of that. <laughs>
4: <laughs> we were we got started about eight years ago. I had been involved in the Emergent Village conversation for a long time, but there was not a lot happening locally Uh, that related to what was happening in some of these national conversations, was part of a a large teaching pastor of a large uh, um, college-type church. And about five friends, uh, we got together and decided it was time to start a community in either Chapel Hill or Durham. And so it really was a response to kind of a wider conversation. Uh, The other point that um, seemed significant to us, I know, is in that job, I could sit at my desk 40 hours a week, uh, and literally just respond to emails, administrative meetings, or people that responded to me. And I think that was really a really concern that uh, the missional life of a pastor was not very present for me at that point. So that was part of our dream was a community where mission and activism would become the norm rather than the the structure or the administration of just doing church.
0: Yeah. Uh, what? <laughs> What does any of that mean? Do you, I mean, seriously, if, the, if Doug Paget were to interview the Apostle Paul, you know, listen, Paul, you know, we heard that you uh, you uh, blew into town there in Philippi and you and you planted a church. Why did you plant a church there in Philippi? If the answer came back anything that remotely sounded like what Tim Condor said here, um, <laughs> uh, we might have a problem. I don't understand. Uh, uh, so they want to be they want to have missional activism and and not be tied up by administrative tasks in the missional community thing Uh uh-huh
6: and so how did you start you were working you were working over at the at the other church and you decided that you were going to start something new where did your funding come from how did you pull people together what was your story on starting that way yeah
4: funding was frightening I, i remember out of our first uh we weren't immediately sure that we were going to be a a church we weren't sure uh, we might have become an intentional community so that
0: balance so you might not have you you weren't sure if you're going to be a church or an intentional community uh-huh how many intentional communities do we read about in the new testament i mean did the apostle paul go okay listen okay so okay got it. planted a church in philippi did the ephesus thing i'm gonna breeze on over to the thessalonica and berea and you know, I you know, I'm thinking Thessalonica intentional community and, and then in Berea we might do the church thing. Uh-huh. This
4: is this story a little bit. Yeah. But the first six months of our gathering in a living room, just you know, a few friends in a house that became ten, fifteen, twenty friends. In a house. House. I think our total collection for six months was about four hundred dollars, which was uh, a little bit less than what my salary was, at the time.
0: and probably overpaid at that.
4: Yeah. So we got off a very slow economic start. I wasn't a situation. Where I was going to be personally funded as kind of the founder for a while, but the community um, really just—I think what we did at first was not make sustainability the starting conversation. Yeah, and as things.
0: we, yeah, yeah, because <laughs> sustainability starting conversation, where's the gospel playing to this?
4: Yeah, um, as we kind of established ourselves in Durham, that that began to happen for us.
6: Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about. <laughs>
0: You can't see it. (laughs) I mean... I'm sorry, but I mean, can you make heads or tails of that answer? I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Yeah, we didn't want to start off with the sustainability question. And so we were up in the air as to whether or not we, you know, we were going to be an intentional community or a church. When Doug, the look on Doug's face, he looked like he was baffled by what he was hearing. And uh, I'm telling you, that doesn't happen easily for Doug what That What were the
6: pressures around you to have sustainability be the, yeah. the starting conversation or not?
0: Yeah, can you because what what could have pressured you into having the sustainability thing be the first question? My question is, what are you talking about? What are you teaching?
6: What kind
4: of well, decisions you have know, to Well, we um, that was kind of my job to make that not the um the original conversation.
6: Uh-huh. Yeah. I think yeah. people
4: watched me. If it was something that I was afraid of, concerned about, Tim, how are you going to make a living with this? Uh, I think that would have been the conversation uh-huh. for us. But eh, maybe that's the job of a leader is to say that starting a community and understanding the values and the missional posture of that community is going to be more
0: important. Than- yeah. So what What's what exactly is a missional posture? Is that a posture where, you know, you you Tebow, you know, you're down on your one knee, is a missional posture where you prostrate yourself flat on your stomach? What is ex- what exactly is a missional posture? I I, I don't. I- I'm hearing words here, and its they're speaking a completely different language. This doesn't sound anything like what I read in the Bible. Having the economics nailed
4: down, yeah. which makes it really different from a business model where you might sit down and say, okay, here's yeah. the economics, here's the outcome, here's what's going to make it happen. And so mm-hmm. I think we just set that aside and uh, found what a faithful posture was going to be for us.
0: Yeah, they had a faithful missional posture. Because they didn't make sustainability the first question that they had in the conversation, you know, after they couldn't decide whether or not they were going to be an intentional community or a church.
6: And how long has the church been going?
4: We're about eight years old now.
6: And you've you've moved to your location a couple of times. Are you in a, a permanent place now?
4: Yeah, a you know, in some ways we like to refer to ourselves, and I think a lot of communities would recognize we're a precarious church in many ways, is that we haven't established ourselves at the point that where everything is assured and beginning in the future. But, you know, it's not unlike Solomon's Porch. We began in a little loft above yeah. a, a a cafe uh, room for maybe thirty, forty people. But we are now in a um, an old church that has failed. We found a a partner who owns the building, uses mm. it for ministry. They rent to us and we've grown to the point of where, you know, rooms for kids to meet in and mm-hmm. all of those things was absolutely essential. So I think that really was a godsend for us. We had a, a very beautiful kind of somewhat trendy kind of downtown space for yeah, a while. It was awesome. didn't have kids, didn't have kids space. So right. now we're in an old church building uh, that that's absolutely perfect for our size and the kind of the organic model that we're trying to, to live out. So great.
6: And if- organic model. What is that? People wanted to see your online presence. Uh what's what's the website for the church?
0: net. All right. So there there you go. Uh you know, little church planting um stuff. Uh, it, and of course, uh Tim Conder is going to be featured at uh, the Joe Pod Church Planters Academy um for emergent uh church planters or intentional community planners. If you can't really make the decision, don't worry um you you just need to have a dream and you'll figure it out um oh man it's <laughs> i mean this sounds nothing absolutely nothing like what we read on of the missionary journeys of the apostle paul who you could say was a habitual chronic uh church planter um the apostle paul was one of the original church planters and uh, he he never had to struggle with the concept of you know are we going to be in an intentional community or a uh, a precarious church you know <laughs> just it never happened but anyway so again just ask the question um, would you want to attend a, a church where they, well I don't know if they Tim would consider himself a pastor uh, the conversation facilitator uh, for the uh, you know for the intentional community conversations that take place in the organic model there. Uh, would you want that person to have gone to uh, Joe Pa Productions Church Planner Academy? Um, uh, I'm thinking no, but you know, then again, you know, you might you might think that's your thing. So, all right, moving along from the HomebrewedChristianity.com website, the headline reads: Did Jesus have to die to save us from our sin? Okay, now I'm going to just state this right up front. Okay, this is a legitimate question. Christianity has nothing to fear from questions. Nothing. It's the answers that you need to watch out for. I mean, seriously, I mean, I've been asked a question similar to this uh, every single time that I've taught junior high or high school in the churches that I'm a member of. Um, You know, inevitably, you're going to get a kid asking this question. Seriously, did Jesus have to die to save us from our sins? I mean, you know, it, that's it's a legitimate question. So we've got nothing to fear from the question. The question is, what's the answer going to be? Okay? Yeah, now, listen, okay? If somebody were to ask me, Chris, okay? And I've been asked questions similar to this. Chris, you know, I've just been thinking about this, Okay? Did Jesus have to die in order to save us from our sin? I would immediately say, Great question. I'm glad you asked it. Now, here's the deal. I couldn't answer this question unless God revealed it. Just plain and simple. I'm not going to be able to arrive at a suitable explanation or a suitable answer by studying botany. I'm not going to come up with a suitable answer by speculating using philosophy and logic. I, you know, because here's the deal. I don't know where to go to to answer this question except for the word of God. So let's take a quick look at what God's word says regarding, you know, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And this whole idea of blood sacrifice, okay? First place I would point somebody to is uh, to the Old Testament. Okay, now I don't have time to give a full explanation regarding what the Old Testament teaches regarding sacrifices, especially on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Okay, but that'd be a great place to point to. You could point to the uh, the sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat and and everything that goes along with that about placing the sins of the people on. On the sacrifice, it, you know, that kind of stuff, that's important stuff. But Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, has a very important thing that it says. Here's what it says. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now Leviticus 17 when you put this uh, verse 11 back into its fuller context you'll understand that what is being discussed here it has to do with the fact that God commanded Israel that they are not to eat the meat of animals with the blood still left in it. In fact, in order for it to be kosher, in order for it to be in in accord with the Mosaic dietary laws, uh you know an uh, 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 Israelite who you know let's say they have a slaughterhouse and they they slaughter one of their cows, uh, you know and uh, it it they, what they have to do is string that thing up, slit its throat, and let the all the blood drain out. They're not to eat the blood uh, the the meat of an animal with the blood still in it. And so this the context here is is answering the question as to why this is so. God's answer to that is because, um, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it. For you on the altar, to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life, so the reason why they were not allowed to eat blood in the uh, in the ancient times was because of the fact that it was the blood that made atonement for their lives, okay, so you have this idea of blood sacrifice for atonement for the forgiveness of sins to propitiate the wrath of God. Hebrews chapter nine verses fifteen through uh twenty uh eight also has a long-running explanation about this, okay, talking about Jesus' sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 says, Therefore he is the mediator, Jesus, of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems. You could say purchases. This is like a slave block term. You've been redeemed and purchased off the slave block, or redeemed or purchased out of debtor's prison. That's kind of the concept. Because okay, why? There's an inheritance at stake here. In order for an inheritance to go in fact, there has to be a death. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood both the tent, and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Hebrews 9.22 makes it very clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23 then hinges back over to Jesus' sacrifice. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the Old Testament sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, all of that, okay? those The the earthly versions were just copies of the originals, and the originals were actually in heaven, okay? For Christ, that's Jesus, has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, just as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that is not his own. For then he, would he Jesus, would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So now, this is important, okay? Here in this passage in Hebrews... It's clear that Jesus' sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. What is the What did John the Baptist say of Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? So the idea here is this, is that the people in the Old Testament were looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice that had not yet chronologically happened. We are looking backwards in history at the accomplished sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Now let me just bring one more passage into bear regarding this and I think it'll help. Okay? And again, the question is d- did Jesus have to die in order to save us from our sin? Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21, it says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so there you go. How do you answer the question? You go to Scripture. So did Jesus have to die? Yes, he did. Because he's the once and for all sacrifice. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is what God has revealed in his word. Do not deviate from this because you do not know better than God. Plain and simple. So now we come to the homebrewed. Christianity which uh, website which by the way is kind of a postmodern plethora of emergent type thinking and Trip Fuller is the author of this particular blog post and he writes did jesus have to die to save us from sin this question has split some uh, has spilt sorry spilt some ink one of the reasons fights over the atonement what god was doing in christ on the cross are so robust historically is the lack of consensus mm mm-hmm and the plurality of answers from the early church on. Even the creeds don't have a theory in them, just that something awesome took place. Why was Jesus on the cross? I don't know. Something awesome happened. So when I got this question as part of uh, Christian uh, Piot's uh, band questions about Jesus' book project, I took three different and conflicting answers to, uh, to youth group. Jesus forgave people of their sins before he died. How could he do this if he actually had to die in order to save us from the, our sins? Okay, so here's what he did. He put it in the form of almost kind of a philosophical theological question. Okay, and here's the idea. Jesus forgave people before, uh, of their sins before he died. Yes, he did. Absolutely true. In fact, the Gospel of Mark, I mean, right in chapter 2, uh, somebody lowers a, a paralytic uh, through the roof of Jesus' house. And Jesus, the first thing out of his mouth is, uh, you know, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, How can he do that, right? How could he do that? Now, keep in mind, even preceding Jesus is John the Baptist. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, it says that people from the surrounding region, Judean region, and from Jerusalem, were coming out to the Jordan to be baptized by John, confessing their sins, and he was baptizing People for or into ice into the forgiveness of their sins, this is what the text says, okay, so now we've got this fun philosophical question: Ha, huh, How could Jesus forgive sins before he was dead? Well, the texts I read make it clear that Jesus' sacrifice was a once for all sacrifice. You can think of it as an eternal sacrifice, the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth, if you would. The, the, that passage would come into play. So the idea here is, is that Jesus' shed blood applies to everybody, Old or New Testament, and it's not just something that uh, that that God somehow was bound chronologically by. The passages bear this out, right? But here we got the philosophical question— All right, Jesus forgave people of their sins before he died. How could this be if he actually had to die? So I gave uh, three five-minute appeals on three different theories after which the youth tore them apart, asked questions, and suggested modifications. And in the end, they ended up and selected the theory, and I sent it to the book. Okay, So here's what a bunch of youth group people basically toying around with atonement theories came up with as to uh, how Jesus forgave people of their sins before he died. Okay? Here was the answer that the youth group came up with. One could answer the question by saying that Jesus knew he was going to die and rise so he could forgive with the future known and certain certain or possibly that Jesus' divine identity gave him the ability to forgive sins at will, or one could even suggest that forgiveness could be given before the cross, then the cross may not have been necessary. It's important to recognize that in forgiving sins, Jesus is acting on behalf of God and was one of the reasons Jesus was opposed to the religious leaders, thus forcing one to explain how Jesus' identity is tied to that of God. To understand this, I have found it helpful to see how Paul reimagined the sacrifice System in light of Christ's work. Traditionally, the act of sacrifice began with the sinner transferring their identity to the animal through the act of consecration. After the animal is killed, so the person was reincorporated into the people of God. Paul reverses the process, so the process begins with Christ identifying with us and ends up with the consecration us identifying with that which is sacrifice. In a sense Paul sees in Christ God coming to put an end to sacrifice by turning it upside down and beginning with God's coming to sinner uh, to sinners with good news. From this perspective, it would make sense that Jesus could forgive sin without having died before God had come in Christ to consecrate the world as God's beloved. <clears throat> you know, so missing there. Biblical passages. And let's see that's the thing atonement theories over and again end up really sounding like um speculation and philosophy it's best just to let the biblical texts do the work did jesus have to die to save us from sin the passages that i just read specifically say without the without without blood okay sacrificing of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The answer is, yes, he did. That's what God has revealed in his word. We dare not go beyond what God has said. All right, we are up on our second break, and when we come back, we're going to be listening to um, an emergent cohort conversation during what would traditionally be like a sermon time Based on the book, uh, The Three Little Wolves and the Big Bad Pig. Man, I wish I was making that up. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, piratechristian. Uh, we will be right back.
6: If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
2: This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe.
0: Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low Prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two. We're well into it already. And again, to the best of my knowledge, now again, you know, I'm getting older and creeping decrepitude has crept upon me, but to the best of my knowledge, this is the first time we've really truly listened to a postmodern conversation in an emergent cohort or an intentional community. You know, anyway, hang on. The good, the bad, and, the, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's, um, well, sermon uh, comes to us via Emmaus Way, Durham, North Carolina. Tim Condor presiding. The conversation is uh, going to be about, um, well... The text is the um, the three little wolves and the big bad pig. I just I wow. Um, apparently, you don't need a Bible. Um, but this is really really important stuff here. Uh, you know, if for your intentional faith community thing. Um, yeah. Anyway. By the way, the the story, the um, the three little wolves and the big bad pig, it's a children's story. Um, kind of flipping, you know, the three little pigs and the big bad wolf story on its head. But I don't know what that has to do with anything that we're supposed to be teaching in a church. And I'm not even sure what exactly makes this church church because I don't know where any of these concepts fit into the overarching, well, thing as far as doing the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. In other words, you know, the apostolic teaching has to be, you know, critical, a core, sound, faith, faithful, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, without any, let me kill this music, without any further ado... Um we're going to dive into the ser- sermon uh, emergent conversation. You ever wanted to know what an emergent cohort conversation sounds like? Well, uh, here we go. Um I don't know if I'm going to make it through the whole thing, so, you know, I'll go as long as I can endure. Here's Tim Conder. So, if you're just hanging with
4: us tonight, let me give you a little uh, step into the the series that we've been doing this summer. It's been fun. We um we had um been in the lectionary the very first part, and then we're doing a series on on images of faith, hope, and love from fiction, which has been really fun. It's been fun for me to uh, kind of live and prepare that. And we're stepping away from our uh, our strong thread that we began with of kind of Southern Catholic. Uh, uh, Hyperrealism that we saw with Flannery O'Connor and uh, and Graham Greene's *The Power and Glory*. The, what a great book! I, last week was one of the best. Kind of weeks ever for me is just to reread that book, uh, and I know uh, Miriam and lots of you. Have, that's a book that you love a lot, and it was a it was a powerful book. But we're going to take a hard right, or as Bugs Bunny used to say, what was it? That left turn in Albuquerque. Uh, we're going to do that tonight to to step into uh, a children's story, and I'm going to put Denise on the spot because uh, I have always loved children's stories, and, I, and I've loved them before I had kids. And one of the things I used to do um, with with teenagers. Switch it, it's amazing how much they love this. Was to read children's stories to them when I did youth work for years and years. But Denise teaches third grade. She's taught fourth and fifth grade at Club Boulevard, which is a, a, a literary uh, uh, and arts magnet. And I don't know of anyone who loves children's stories more than Denise and has more amazing recommendations for your reading list. So don't wait. Uh, don't waste them just on your kids. Read them yourself. But Denise, what do you love so much about about children's stories? Well,
1: Wade mentioned. Our- Artwork is fascinating, and I feel like people, because they have several pages to tell a story through pictures, they take um, risk and just on the different styles, and it seems like a way of expression. But just the stories themselves, um, there's a profound simplicity to them, and ways that they're simple enough for kids to understand and enjoy. But sometimes when I'm reading the books to my class, like I have to take a breath and like, do you guys know what this means on a deeper level? Because there's ways of conveying themes of forgiveness and grace in a really powerful way that I feel like connects me to the gospel in a world that I can imagine and see and that kids can imagine and see. And so, you know, I've been teaching for over a decade and read some of the same stories again and again to kids and there's always something new that somebody catches and there's always something new that i get and they just having they also create the shared experience that because the themes are universal like our class we've cried together we've laughed together and it just it really sets the stage for community and um Pretty powerful, and actually, one of my former students was just quoted in the newspaper when they had this big thing in the News and Observer about um, the end of Harry Potter, and she was quoted. Uh, you know, my fourth-grade teacher read the book to me, and I was hooked. And she just talked about, you know, she was one of those people at midnight when the bookstore opened um, or released the you know new edition, the new copy. She was there. She locked herself in the room, and she's in college. or graduated from college now, and it's just like. Those themes of friendship, and they stuck with me throughout my life. So I think just when you're reading a children's book, you don't have to, they're not pretentious, and they're something that everyone can relate to, and so it's pretty amazing. And uh, I do have a recommendation oh, yeah, for please. a follow-up read for tonight's story. is Little Beauty by Anthony Brown, and it's such a great story of grace and friendship and love. So yeah. highly
3: recommend it.
0: Chelsea, I see you nodding. Now, I want to make something perfectly clear. I am all for reading your kids' children's stories. No problem with that at, at all. I think it's a great thing for you to do as a parent if you've got small kids to be uh, reading stories to them at night. It's an important thing to be doing. So don't think I'm knocking that. It's just that um, sermon time in a church service is a odd place to be doing this. And you're a fan as well.
1: Yeah, even with my eighth graders, they, that was their favorite day when I read to them children's stories because you can teach
4: so much from a children's story. Yeah, and we, we've learned that a little bit in our culture through film. It, you know, as we've we've seen these films that were maybe targeted toward kids and adults, realizing wow. But it is what's interesting. and uh, we, Hopefully, we can have this tonight. Is there is a community experience in hearing a story that's short and brief and
0: Community experience and hearing a story. Um, I don't recall the importance of having community experiences during storytelling time as being an important thing in disciple making, unless, of course, the stories you are telling are from Scripture.
4: And you know, last week, even as great as the power and the glory was, I, you know, we're, we're reading a five-page, a seven-page section together, and I'm sitting there thinking, "Oh my gosh, if we could just read this, and we could read this." And um, and one of the things I think I've learned from Wade, uh, some of the best music that we've done has been incredibly economical in the amount of words that's involved with that. Uh, and there's several Bob Dylan songs that have about a hundred words in them that 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 broach these massively significant themes and stories. So thank you for for that testimonial. Um, th- the story we're going to listen to tonight is a. It, it's also uh, for uh, the genre. I would throw it at you, and, I, and, th- and this has been one of my favorites. So some of you have heard me read this many, many times. But uh, I encountered this ten or twelve years ago and realized this is truly a, a postmodern morality tale, and it's, it and it and it reeked of the gospel for me because it's an inversion story. It takes a
0: postmodern. Take on a fairy tale, and it reeks of the gospel because it's an inversion story? It makes me wonder what you think the gospel is.
4: It's what you expect, and inverts it. And the, the title, even the Three Little Wolves and the Big Bad Pig, reminds us that we're we're looking at something in a different way than we would would normally look at that. And so uh, that's one of the things I love about children's stories. And hopefully I'm going to read read the, this to you. I'll edit just a little bit, but I'm going to read it to you. But I'm going to walk around for just a, at a couple points because uh, you definitely need the visual on the on the Big Bad Pig, which is uh, which is a, a unique and strange creature.
0: Yeah, I mean it's tough to tell. <laughs> A children's story without showing the pictures, you know that's important. That we will meet tonight. So, uh, so make yourself comfortable. I mean, if you're if you're really comfortable
4: with the person beside you, you can put your head on their shoulder, uh, give them a little back rub if you'd like, uh, what whatever. Um, but uh, but uh, anyway, make yourself comfortable. This is the three little wolves and the big bad pig, and. Um, what I'm going to ask you afterwards is some of the typical stories, uh, questions, I want your reactions to the story. But if you'll notice in the music tonight, kind of the, the liturgy has been pushing us in realms of fears and of community and beauty, and those will be some of the kind of themes that will certainly come out of this, and, and you'll recognize that instantly. So,
0: Yeah, abstract liberal concepts. Here we go. Once upon a time, there were three
4: cuddly little wolves with soft fur and fluffy tails Who lived with their mother. The first was black. The second was gray. And the third was white. One day the mother called the three little wolves around her. And she said, My children, it's time for you to go out into the world. Go and build a house for yourselves. Here's the key advice though. But beware of the big, bad pig. So they were. So they met a kangaroo who was pushing a wheelbarrow full of red and yellow bricks. Please sir, will you give us some of your bricks? Asked the three little wolves. And certainly, said the kangaroo, she gave them lots of red and yellow bricks. So the three little wolves built themselves a house of bricks. But the very next day, the big bad pig came prowling down the road. I'm going to give you a little look at this big bad pig here. So the big bad pig is coming down the road. And he saw the house of bricks that the little wolves had built. The three little wolves, they were playing croquet in the garden. But when they saw the big bad pig coming, they ran inside and locked the door. And the pig knocked on the door and grunted, Little wolves, little wolves, let me come in. No, 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 said the three little wolves. By the hair of our chinny chin chins, we will not let you in, not for all the tea leaves in our china teapot. So the pig says, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down, said the pig. So he huffed and he puffed and he puffed and he huffed, but the house didn't fall down. Because that's not likely for brick houses, right? But the pig wasn't called big and bad for nothing. So he went and fetched a sledgehammer and he knocked down the house. And the three little wolves just managed to escape before the bricks crumbled. And they were very frightened indeed. They said, we'll have to build a stronger house. And just then they saw a beaver who was mixing concrete in a concrete mixer. "'Please, will you give us some of your concrete?' asked the three little wolves. "'Certainly,' said the beaver. And he gave them buckets and buckets full of messy, slurry concrete. So the three little wolves built themselves a house of concrete. But no sooner had they finished than the big bad pig came prowling down the road again and saw the house of concrete that the little wolves had built. Now they were playing battle door and shuttlecock in the garden, but they saw the big bad pig coming and they ran inside the house and they shut the door. The pig rang the bell and he said, Frightened little wolves, let me come in. No, 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 said the three little wolves. Not by the hair on our chinny chin chins. We will not let you in. Not for all the tea leaves in our china teapot. Then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down, said the pig. So he puffed and he huffed and he huffed and he puffed, but the house didn't fall down which is not likely for a concrete house. But the pig wasn't called big and bad for nothing. So he went and fetched his pneumatic drill and smashed the house down. The three little wolves managed to escape, but their chinny-chin-chins were trembling and trembling and trembling. We shall build even a stronger house, they said, because they were very determined. Just then they saw a truck coming down the road carrying barbed wire, iron bars, armor plates, and heavy metal padlocks. Please, will you give us some of your barbed wire, a few iron bars, and armor plates, and some heavy metal padlocks, they said, to the rhinoceros who was driving the truck. Sure, said the rhinoceros, and he gave them plenty of barbed wire, iron bars, armor plates, and heavy metal padlocks. He also gave them some plexiglass and some reinforced steel chains because he was a generous and kind-hearted rhinoceros. (laughs) So the three little wolves built themselves an extremely strong house. It was the strongest, securest house one could possibly imagine. Uh, d-
0: d- just a reminder, this is not found anywhere in the Bible, and you know, if you were not sure about that. Imagine they were absolutely safe. The next day... The big
4: bad pig came prowling down the road as usual, and the three little wolves were playing hopscotch in the garden. When they saw the big bad pig coming, they ran inside their house, bolted the door, and locked all 37 padlocks. The pig dialed the video entrance phone and said, "'Little frightened wolves with the trembling chins, let me come in!' "'No, no, no!' said the little wolves. "'By the hair on our chinny-chin-chins, we will not let you in, not for all the tea leaves in our china teapot. Then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down, said the pig. So he huffed and he puffed and he puffed and he huffed. But the house wouldn't fall down. But the pig wasn't called big and bad for nothing. He had brought some dynamite and laid it against the house, lit the fuse, and kabloom He blew the house up.
0: Now, normally, when there's Bible twisting going on, people are allegorizing a biblical text. I correct it, but... What am I supposed to correct this with at this point? Um, Yeah, I have no idea. The three little wolves just managed to escape with their
4: fluffy little tails scorched. Something must be wrong with our building materials, they said. We have to try something different. But what? At that moment, they saw a flamingo coming down, pushing a wheelbarrow full of flowers. Please, will you give us some flowers, asked the little wolves. With pleasure, said the flamingo, and he gave them lots of flowers. So the three little wolves built themselves a house of flowers.
0: I wonder if I should exegete green eggs and ham. I'm sure I can find all kinds of spiritual themes in that. One wall was of marigolds, one of daffodils, one of pink roses, and one of cherry blossoms.
4: The ceiling was made of sunflowers, and the floor was a carpet of daisies. They had water lilies in their bathtub and buttercups in the refrigerator. It was a rather fragile house. It swayed in the wind, but it was very beautiful. The next day the big bad pig came prowling down the road and saw the house of flowers that the three little wolves had built. He rang the blue bell at the door and he said, Little frightened wolves with the trembling chins and the scorched
0: tails, let me come in.
4: No, 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 said the three little wolves. By the hair on our chinny-chin-chins, we will not let you in,
0: not for all the tea leaves. You know what's weird about listening to this, aside from the fact that we're listening to this, is that um, you notice that uh, you're getting the whole three little wolves story in context i mean this story is going on and on i mean by the end of it we're going to hear the whole story you know could you imagine the the riot that would take place in many churches today if the pastor read from the bible for this long oh can't have that
4: in our china teapot
0: then i'll huff and i'll puff and i'll blow your house down said
4: the pig but as he took a deep breath Ready to huff and puff, he smelled the soft scent of the flowers. It was fantastic. And because the scent was so lovely, the pig took another breath and then another. And instead of huffing and puffing, he began to sniff. He sniffed deeper and deeper until it was quite filled with the fragrant scent. His heart grew tender, and he realized how horrible he'd been. Right then, right then, he decided to become a big, good pig, He started to sing and dance the tarantella. At first, the three little wolves were a bit worried. It might be a trick. But soon they realized that the pig had truly changed. So they came running out of the house, and they started playing games with him. First they played pig pog, then piggy in the middle. And when they were all tired, they invited him into the house. They offered him tea and strawberries and wolf berries and asked him to stay with them as long as he wanted. The pig accepted, and they... Live happily ever after. <laughs> so, what is your reactions to that story? Does that has some parents read that story before?
0: Yeah, my reaction is it has absolutely no place in a church service. That, that's my reaction. Their kids? anybody, anybody
4: know that one? Yeah.
5: I must be a jerk because I was hoping to pick
4: at asthma. <laughs> yeah. Trigger was over here. Uh- This feels like group
0: therapy time to me.
4: Uh, I think he did his his master's thesis on uh, God's horrific intervention into the lives of big bad pigs. And uh, yeah. No, not at all. (laughs) Other reactions. I think
5: wolves studied engineering.
4: Yeah, those were clever wolves. I mean, the pneumatic drill, the video phone. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Maybe you come. Maybe you come, yeah. I, do do these people realize that the three little wolves and the big bad pig aren't real? I mean, yeah, yeah instead of building defenses, you
7: know, um, I guess the story showed how um, maybe reacting differently would, would help the situation.
4: Yeah. So gotta... Oh, and we live in a defensive world, don't we? Where that's one of the things we're deeply trained in. Absolutely. Yeah, somebody over here said, "Yeah, Lauren.
3: Yeah, I was just gonna say, like, I wonder what would happen if the first time the pig demanded come in, they said, "Here, sure, have some cute cookies." You know, we might have been able to save the brick house. Yeah. <laughs> um, as opposed to you know all of the other stuff, but
0: yeah, I see. This whole story is really about sustainability, if you ask me. I mean, but
3: um, and even just thinking about like what, yeah, like kind of if they had maybe gotten to know the big bad pig and. Why why was he bad? Maybe he had a hurt childhood. I don't know,
0: you know. Yeah, maybe he was victimized as a piglet, you know. Maybe he was the runt, and uh, and so he overcompensated, you know.
3: Like, you know, I know a lot of times, um, you know, people that drive me crazy if I kind of make myself do something nice for them and eventually... You know, I I end up not always. Sometimes people are just jerks, and it doesn't seem to matter what I do. But a lot of times, it's like I feel better towards them; they feel better towards me. And you know, a lot of things I feel can be can be helped over chocolate chip cookies.
2: Yeah,
4: that's true. It's hard to hate somebody over chocolate chip good chocolate chip cookies. So true. Any other rations? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, oh.
7: I, I like the story. i never heard about this one before. Um, I think particularly when I think in terms of families um, whenever one person starts getting defensive what they usually to defend themselves they usually um, say something to attack put down the other even if it's in a subtle way and then that the other person feels you know, put on the spot, and so it really gets the whole cycle going, and, and a different kind of reaction like that is a lot of what I would do in marriage counseling or oh, family counseling or something, trying to get a different reaction going, and, it, and
3: it's amazing how much it
0: can transform things. On the other hand... <laughs> yeah, I'm experiencing life transformation, all because of the three little wolves and the big bad pig, and you know, the repentance of the big bad pig, I mean, after smelling flowers, it's just so beautiful. Now I was thinking
4: vocationally, you've um, probably seen a lot of people call each other big pet pigs.
7: Oh yeah, and, and behave that, that way too, and they both are behaving that way to each other, you know. Um, but, but all of them see themselves as the tender little creatures inside, you know, that need to be defended. Um,
1: but on the other
7: hand, communities are, are very strong and sometimes you meet someone whose reactions are so strongly um, it's not just individuals needing each other. Their whole identity is tied up with a different community that's not present, and and that kind of kind reaction does does not necessarily get responded to because there's there's so much more going on than for individuals uh, in that and. Um, you can see that not only in, in big um, racial or political disputes, but um, sometimes there's smaller subgroups in society that, that people are pretty heavily invested in because you know, it's part of their identity. And I sometimes the kindness and the empathy can work to start. Unraveling those knots, but I'm, I'm not—I'm um, not eager. I used to work at a rape crisis center, and you know I'm not going to tell somebody who's been raped to uh, go find somebody she thinks is a rapist and try and act nice to them and turn them around. I mean. It, it, she would be putting herself in danger, and, and I ought to be put in jail for my recommendation. So I, I'm just
4: saying, it's I both like it, and then I, I have all these questions in my mind You know, when I first, uh, one of the when I first started reading this story, a, a parallel illustration of that is uh, try planning a church. And and, so, and some of you guys have been around for seven or eight years. Know we've kind of this community has morphed. Uh, Three, four times, I would say, in terms of you know people here that were here for two or three years. But the very first year was the craziest year of them all, in the sense that this was no one's community except for about four or five or six people, and so you were inheriting their stories, their stories that you know that many who had had violence done to them in the church and by its leaders, and people who had had dramatic experiences, but they weren't here. And, and so there, there's, there's something in that comment, there's something deeply precarious um, about community formation that's very frightening and very vulnerable. And one of the things that, uh, that we realized, having, for me, having worked in large churches my whole career for 20 years, is the, the sense of incredible vulnerability that comes with community formation. I mean, you just, and we've said this many times, and it, it's uh, our artists like Tim Holly and Dale Baker and Wade and uh, many who've played, I mean, several of them like Dale and Mike Gergan and others who've played literally stadium-level concerts with bands that had top ten hits, and, and, and they would come to this community and say, this is the most frightening thing I've ever done in my life is to like sit in the middle of people where you can like see their faces and you can see their scowls and, you know, uh, you're you're drumming and you've got somebody at your elbow, so to speak. And so there is something very vulnerable about community formation that we should, uh, we'll circle back to. There was a comment here that I I lost. Okay. Oh, yeah, sure. Tim. (laughs) Let me, a couple things about this story I have a couple personal, one of the things that I like about about um, children's literature is a lot of times you'll ask a vulnerable question about yourself without realizing that you've asked that vulnerable question. It, it's kind of slipped past your defenses because you're looking at the pictures and you're enjoying the story. So I have a few questions for you guys um, that, that that might be good for us to hear as a community. We love doing storytelling uh, in terms of the community. But uh, as a theme of this story was the, the theme of protection. And we mentioned this, how, how easy it is, how much we've been... Train to protect ourselves and sometimes with good cause.
0: You know, that the reason why we have to protect ourselves is because, well, there's real dangers in this earth as a result of man's fall into sin. Yeah, there's such things as violence and murder and things like that. Uh, that's a consequence of our sin. You know, this would be a great time to, you know, maybe talk about sin and then how Jesus Christ suffered bled and died on the cross for our sins you know something like that you know
4: so what
0: in your life
4: in your living in your breathing in your being what do you feel like you need to protect or protect yourself or others from false doctrine what 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 stirs up your greatest feelings of protection Incomplete, not up to snuff, just somebody really seeing that you you don't have it. And of course, I've lived in Chapel Hill, Durham for 25, 27 years. One of the rules of polite conversation at a dinner party or an event is you never claim expertise about anything, right? Because if you do, you quote something, there's probably somebody sitting in the room who either wrote it or teaches it, or, you know, and so this is a community that really pushes you to hold back. Because there's probably somebody sitting there that knows more. And some of you guys who are in doctoral programs, I mean, you know that one of the lifebloods of this community is you're of no value if what you do isn't critiqued. Uh, if, it's, if it's worthy, then it's critiqued, but critique becomes a lifeblood. It's something that we, we might learn in a doctoral seminar, but it's not necessarily the normal way that we want to live. So. Very guarded. I think it's a great point. Other things that you feel the impulse to, to be protective about. Oh, sure. Chelsea. So this is a, this, I think, hits me in a really tender
1: spot because my church background was extremely legalistic. And um, part of that was, in essence, protecting the answers because everyone inside the community answers and people outside the college. So Kind of an act to, to break those walls down because I still want to come up. Like there, there's a right answer. There's a right
3: way to look at this. There's, you know, people are doing something wrong. or It's just right and wrong, and it's really hard just to sort of break that wall
1: down and say, "Let's talk about it." Because I was always presented as these are the answers you need to memorize them and go forth and teach with others. So for me, when I think about protecting my faith almost has this wall around it. That I feel like I am being to break
4: down, but it's really hard for me to do that. Yeah, and you know, it's so often people who do uh, uh, spiritual direction, I bet Larry has this experience, so often say that just loving God or experiencing the love of God might be the, the mountain that people can't climb because we've been taught to, in some ways, protect God. I think um, one of the the most profound things, that a book that a lot of us have written here, Body Politics, by uh, John Howard Yoder, there's a part where he talks about dialogue and reconciliation and making relationships and saying you don't need to protect God. But I was well-trained in protecting God from the hordes of people out there that were going to –
0: Which, by the way, is, again, it's kind of one of these – that's a silly statement, protect God. Um, mm Mm-hmm. Christian apologetics and sound biblical doctrine has nothing to do with protecting God. That's like that statement that we heard earlier from Terry Christ about Jesus didn't die on the cross for sound doctrine. He died for people. It's like an adventure in missing the point. Uh, Christian apologetics is about overcoming objections to the gospel. Sound doctrine is taught in such a way that people know with certainty what God has revealed about himself, what is true regarding God. Rebuking false doctrine is really not about protecting God. It's about protecting people from wolves in sheep's clothing and from false teachers and false prophets. This isn't about protecting God. Hate and, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's
4: a very, that kind of post-fundamentalist, post-evangelical story is one of the big stories that we have here. Other thoughts? Other things you feel like you need to protect? Uh, yeah, Sherbushalina and then Roger, you next. I, I think also
3: um, when somebody is putting you at risk, when somebody is putting me at risk who you trust... When, they, when they're putting you at risk in a way that, that could have huge ramifications, negative ramifications, um, for their own good, for their own betterment, for their own, wherever they're moving, where it, it could be on a corporate level, it could be on, on a personal level. I think there's that, that internal sense of, you know, needing to protect so that kind of that naivete you know, is is dropped or that walking with those open eyes of,
4: you know, weird. We live in such a strangely connected world. I mean, someone can put something unbelievably freaky on your Facebook page or on your Twitter feed and all your friends read it before you see it, you know, and and so there's this sense of deep connection that we have, which is a deep vulnerability. Roger, you were going to say something. I was just going to say, you mentioned Yoder. A long time ago, Yoder convinced me to be a pacifist, and I was for a long time, until I had children, and I just think the impulse that I would protect
6: my children would probably overwhelm any any convictions I have, and, and I struggle with that a lot, thinking about what, you know, what that
4: means. Yeah. We say this here, these guys have heard me say this a lot, but I'll say many times that I'm pretty committed to the gospel, and willing to take some risk, and career, and ideology, and I've been told that uh, before that I was in league with the dark one at one point, <laughs> I mean, you, you hear those things, but... I've often said, I'll do a lot of things for the gospel, but there's a part of me that doesn't want my kids to believe in the gospel because that crazy thing is going to ask them to do stuff like turn the other cheek and love people that are unlovely and things that you just, you know, you're like, there's only so many spots in the boardroom. There's only so many spots in the elite college. I mean, the gospel is not going to get you there. So kids, you know, pray the prayer, do something, but don't take that stuff seriously until you're, 40 and you've made it. You're safe and secure so to speak. And so the gospel is a pretty frightening place. Um my son told me a story uh the other day uh, we were we were um
0: what, uh, can you define the term gospel? How, what do you mean by that? What what exactly is the gospel? I'm confused at this point. Maybe I'm lost in the conversation. I need to find my inner child and you know participate in the group therapy going on here.
4: He's now an 11th grader, but he was talking about how difficult one of his science classes was because his partner was unbelievably, he was just the super difficult kid who wouldn't do work, wouldn't work together, was highly critical, all those things. And and he said, you know, the teacher changed partners. um, This is, I think, uh, physics, every three weeks. But I had this same guy for three quarters and half of the fourth quarter and i said what in the deal and he said you know i think i'm just a nice guy that was willing to kind of be to kind of tolerate this kid who was horrible and it, i suffered because everybody else had somebody to help them do the work so the gospel is a dangerous thing and it makes us want to like let's keep this thing at bay as well as sometimes we have things that are incredibly precious to us here's a quick follow-up question what are your strategies of protection when you are protecting yourself? What are the things you like to do? Uh, how do you? How do you? Kung fu. You make yourself safe, or uh,
0: firearms, or make others safe. Wait.
5: Well, I was thinking about that in light of the um, materials that they use in the story, because what's funny is that you can see the materials keep getting stronger. But you can also see the materials becoming more like prisons. Like you go from, you know, just brick, which we still make houses from and whatever, but you can make a bit of a bomb shelter from, not too good. But concrete, you can make a pillbox or a, a bunker. And then the stuff that they have for the third house could really be like a concentration camp. Like it was kind of, you know, it, it sort of had the Auschwitz kind of thing going on. And so it's weird that their protection could also be...
0: Their prison, and I. Yeah, that, that's profound. Yeah,
5: I was thinking about how that has a double-edged sword <clears throat> many
4: times. Yeah, if you if you're interested or you want to get this for your family or kids, look through the pictures after we're finished tonight, and you'll see how prison-like the their, their dwelling becomes from a modest brick home to a place that you know is fun to be. Yeah, that, it reminded me of
5: like my cousin wrote this short story about this guy that was. Um, been let out of prison, in this small town, this like mob, was basically coming to, to, to you know, to kill him, and he ended up like bricking himself in in his cellar, and you know, he's so, sort of the story's kind of dark, and sort of sits there and
0: like. What on earth does this have to do with anything? I feel like I'm listening to a radio version of celebrity rehab. Hi. The
5: story's kind of dark, and sort of sits there and like feels safe, but he's you know you're gonna die there because he's bricked himself in. Like, until I remember that it was a children's story, I sort of thought that was the direction they were going. Like, oh, the pigs are going to, like, feel, feel all safe in this, like, prison-like, um, you know, uh, atmosphere. And then, like, the credits are going
4: to roll. <laughs> like, the kids roll and Or like a good, you know, Alaskan adventure where they have to start eating each other. <laughs> they vote to eat wolf number three. <laughs> 273 hours in the fortress. Yeah, yeah. It could get grim. But
5: that was, that was sort of where I went, to. I almost feel like that, I don't know, I, I like that ending better in some ways because that that is a more powerful to me message that like what we think is so safe is, uh, is can really become.
0: No, notice, I mean, this is how they handle the biblical text too. They subjectivize it. It's all about what you feel and think that it means to you and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is like a really bad small group study.
5: <sighs> more like or really protecting ourselves from, from something or, you know, or what, what's the
4: deal going on? You know, what I have really enjoyed about this community, and I say this sometimes with people who are new, is I say, you know, one of the things that we, we can't offer you here is anonymity. I mean, your people are going to talk to you. <laughs> they're going to get your name. They're going to know your story. They're going to know what's going to mean That's just kind of the, the nature of an organic church uh, on that. But it, it truly is um, one of the things you see in Christian communities a whole lot. And this is maybe, maybe for somebody in my vocation, one of the most frustrating things is people that get to a community where they're known finally and that scares the hell out of them, and they leave because they, they, they're they right at the point where they could be helped, they're right at the point where somebody is going to call them by name who's going to know their story and so I say that it's thanks to some of you who have been unbelievable about sharing stories that have been so vivid I, I think of, well, you know, when uh, another good Stanley Harawas quote, we did a series here called uh, Pots, Pans, and Genitals uh, from a Stanley Hauerwas quote that said, any God who doesn't have anything to say about your pots, pans, and genitals is probably not a very good God. And uh, uh, um, Sarah and Trigger and people told these incredible stories, some that we laugh about still today. And so uh, your vulnerability has been an incredible gift to this community because our impulse is to protect ourselves, it's to, to, to wall ourselves in. Kind of a right turn at Albuquerque, but the, another theme here is the question of what are some acts of
0: beauty that is. In- yeah, what are some acts of beauty from this children's story? I am losing my mind at this point. Inspire
4: you so much that you've seen them be transformative either personally or in community. What 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 is what are the things that you've encountered that you would put in that broad category of beauty and you found it incredibly transformative for you? Yeah, Laura and then
3: kind of growing up in a household where my parents were not particularly loving. Um, and so, you know, the whole idea of God as Father is really hard for me to kind of get my mind around. That, like the whole loving parent thing, because I'm like, I don't get that. So, um, I was over at um, visiting Wendy and Joshua one day, and we were doing little art project kind of stuff. And Joshua's too, if you haven't met him, he's very cute. And, and
4: some seriously curly hair. He's yeah. a he's the man.
3: He's quite
4: the man he the oh yeah, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. You might want to wall him in.
3: And so we were, you know, we were working on this project, and, and you know, I was working on a paper cut thing, and when he was working with clay, and, and um, she had a bowl of water, and she kind of knew that when the bowl of water came out, that she's got a two year old. Something's gonna happen, you know. But so you know, like. It would happen. Joshua's you know, reaching for something else, he accidentally hits the bowl of water. It spills, and Joshua just kind of instantly was like, "Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry." And if I had done something like that, the hammer would have fallen. There would have been spanking. There would have been all of supplies put away. You know, we're done. We got a stern talking to, you. and you know, that's the sort of thing that like, but it, you're two. It's supposed to happen. It just happened. And instead, what Wendy did. she helped clean him up and she kept saying, it's fine, my darling, it's fine, my darling, here's some more, here's some more art supplies, let's keep going, you know, and I just, it just broke my heart, I mean, it was just so beautiful, like, I cried later on when I went home, (laughs) because I was like, that, but, and I, and it's not just Wendy, I've seen that over and over, you know, going to Chelsea and visiting with her kids, just seeing loving parents and loving their kids, to me, just uh, it makes me cry every time. It just is so powerful to me to see. It helps me see that God, as a loving parent, and makes more sense to me after seeing that.
4: So. One of our seminars this week in Colorado Springs was on the idea of worship as play. And kind of our introduction was... Let's talk about something that a lot of us know absolutely nothing about. Because whether you know we got involved in, in like in what we've done to our own kids in highly competitive sports where there were professionals coaching them by the time they were eight years old, or whether it was the seriousness of our world or environments that didn't let us you know say let's make biscuits and just get stuff all over the countertops. It'll eventually be cleaned. Uh, and so for many of us, there's we we. Haven't had those deeply visceral experiences of graciousness or play or imagination. So we might even think, um, and I'm thinking some of you who are musicians uh, on this, we might even think we're being a little bit naughty when we're, we're starting to play. <laughs> you know, you're looking around going, Can I write this song? And Mark, have you ever had that experience? Is it legal to do that? You know, I mean, it, it's, it's something that, uh, that we've had some way stamped out of our culture. So, yeah. Good story. Any other? Oh yeah,
7: Yeah. This one only had partial success, I'm afraid. But um, one of my past churches, which will remain nameless, um, I joined, and then I had to be uh, gone away from the city for for over a year. Came back, and um, they were having a big church dispute, and their whole studies of church conflict, you know, and how it escalates and names for the different stages. And they'd already progressed up while I'd been gone to the stage in which they were demonizing the other side. You know, um, each side was thinking horrible things about the other side and become very personally attacking. I stood up in one of the business meetings to to say something. And um, after I had said a sentence or two, one of the leaders of one of the sides he mm-hmm. got up and came over and, and started saying some really kind of attacking statements And a very, um, he had been a CEO of a company, Borrello, <laughs> and, um, and I think that he expected that I would either get defensive and mad, in which case he was assuming that he could just out, bluster me because he had had a lot of experience with that. Um, or that I would just shrivel up, but somehow God guided me, and I, as he came up, I just walked on over to him and put my arm around him and said, yeah, and one of the things that we need to think about is to take in everyone's point of view like this, and we need to really try and hear the, the thing that we need to hear from God and each person's point of view and put that all together.
0: Mm, yeah, so we're going to hear from God by putting everybody's point of view together. Not reading the Bible, but taking everybody's point of view and putting it all together. That's how we're going to hear from God.
7: Well, I don't think he had ever experienced anybody responding to him in a way that he had not expected like that. So it worked temporarily, but he was quiet. I don't think I would finish what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work in the long run. Partly because, as I tried to talk to more of the people who were polarized in that church and tried to have, go out to coffee with some of them, they refused to go out
4: to coffee with me. They wouldn't do it. I think that's one of the big challenges a lot of us face with reconciliation and redemption is that some people just don't want to, to partake, and that's one of the dangers of the world that we live in. One last, oh, yeah, Daniel. Um,
5: Sometimes, the there was a
6: community around the pigs, but it's nice sometimes to have the rhinoceros come over while the pig is there. And that would have changed the dynamic. And I think when I've been weak, I've needed strong people to protect me and um, be willing to kind of lend their strength. Well, that's one of the things I think we deeply
4: forget that we, we, we have to do. There's a level of community training that we need to learn to do. We, we talk about this
0: Hi. Okay. Um. Yeah. Level of community training we need to be. What is this? Um. The scriptures tell us that the Christians dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, the prayers, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. Um. Like I said, this sounds like a really bad episode of uh celebrity therapy or you know or celebrity rehab whatever um yeah i feel like i need you know call in alan alda let's all get in the fetal position and you know get in touch with our inner child um i have no idea what this has to do with biblical christianity like at all i have no idea what this has to do with the bible like at all um the way we hear God's voice is not to let us all get our opinions out and then collectively piece that together, and that's what God is saying. The way to hear God's voice, you open up the Bible and you read it. Um, This is not a formula for church. This is not a formula for making disciples. Uh, this is a formula for uh, distractive pop psychology and... Uh, Group therapy, but this ain't, this ain't, this has nothing to do with making disciples. Man, I mean, what do I correct at this point? No, your feelings are wrong? I he's Fine, whatever. Um, This just, I don't know what this is. Anyway, I thought I'd put that in the mix so y'all can hear what it sounds like. Now you can all say, I've heard the uh, uh, co- an emergent conversation at a cohort. And uh yeah. Everybody got their, got to do, it sounded like group therapy. Um, nothing like biblical Christianity. All right. Um, well, we are up on, uh, at the end of our program, I'm not going to keep going because, you know, it's like basically taking my brain out of my head and dragging it across a gravel driveway. So yeah, it's getting to be painful. So if you just, this is listener support radio, visit our website, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and, uh, you know, anyway, I if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. you can follow me on Twitter, my name there at PirateChristian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ his vicarious death on the cross for all of our sins. Amen. Oh, my brain is mush.